This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss chapters 17 through 46 of the book and episodes 3 through 6 of season 1 of the TV series Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones week three. We're in the heart of it now. I wanted to ask you, do you think that we live inside the eye of a blue-eyed giant named Macumba? <laughs> uh, old Nan would have us believe, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, I love that. That's a good... I think that was a show-only detail, too. I don't think that was in the book, so I like it. Yeah, I think you're right. I love the Old Nan stuff, and, and getting the differences between Old Nan in the book and, and in the show is is really cool. Old Nan is, is the best, and I, I it, she gives a speech, I think, in this first episode. Uh, maybe we're jumping ahead. I'm not sure. But she gives a speech about the long night and to Bran, and uh, oh, yeah. that speech was played over the very first Game of Thrones trailer that ever came out. And I remember that that, like, still to this day gives me chills just thinking about, like, how excited I was when I saw that very first trailer before the season one ever came out. It was It was crazy. So much hype. Uh, I know you came in season two, so you probably missed some of the hype. But man, was it wild! And you can imagine because I had read all the books that up that were out of that up to that point. It was so cool to just like be like, "Oh my god, they're actually doing it!" Of all the characters, Old Nan was in the trailer. Basically, it was wild. Yeah, we got to talk about Old Nan in, in more depth here soon because I just uh, how can she see all of these? I guess it's just stories, right? Yeah, she's just she just she just collects stories. I think she has some sort of future sight, in my opinion, as well. Maybe she might have a touch of the green side or whatever. But yeah, so we should talk about how we're going to do our coverage here. So last week we did the show, uh, the first two episodes, and we really dived into the showrunners and some of their history in, in, in the industry. And the week before that, we did the opening to the book. We talked about George R. R. Martin at length and his backstory and how he came to write this series. So if you're interested in that stuff and you haven't checked out those episodes, definitely check them out. Um, but now we're through all that and we're into the point where we can just talk about basically what happens. So in that sense, we're going we're gonna to accelerate our speed a little bit. We're going to not be quite as granular, but we're going to try and touch on each, each episode and make some comparisons to the book and just move through season one here, and, and we'll, we'll finish it up next week. Yeah, and there's plenty of differences to talk about. I mean, com- entire characters are completely different already, and, and this is such a su- supposedly such a faithful adaptation, and I agree yeah. with that, but it is something to think about going forward as th- they start to get away from the template of George R. R. Martin's song of ice and fire novels yeah they added some scenes that i actually really like and i'm definitely going to touch on those as we go through uh as much as we can i did want to make a clarification uh in reference to last week's episode because i think we both hit the 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 showrunners pretty hard over some of the decisions they made with the uh added sexuality and the added nudity and the the sexing up of like particularly some of danny's scenes um i just wanted to clarify because listening back to the episode, I'm not sure if I made it clear. Um, I'm not against having nudity in the show. I'm not against having sex in the show. I'm not like 
going to have some sort of prudish take of, oh, my God, don't show me boobs or I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like, it's not or, or, or cock or whatever. <laughs> like, it's fine. Show all the cocks you want. In fact, um, I, I'm, I'm all for equity and nudity. It's, you know, I'm fine with that, too. Yeah. And I think there's a place for that kind of stuff. And like this entertainment can be that way. It's fine. Uh, I wanted to make sure I was clear that what I was what I was reacting to is when I think they're being lazy with it and they're using it to dress up a scene that is otherwise boring, um, that can be kind of frustrating. But really, the truly the, the egregious stuff is when they're trying to make a sexual assault sexy. And that's that's where I took umbrage with particularly the Danny scenes. But yeah, I didn't want to come off like I was saying, like, oh, I, there shouldn't be nudity in this show or 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 what have you. Like, I, I hope I didn't come off that way because that's definitely not what I meant. I didn't get that impression because because okay. I also feel the same way. I don't I don't mind it. And, and I think that it done well and tastefully, I think that it's it adds something to the show. But like you said, if it's just, you know, if it's just thrown in there as a way to keep people entertained, I don't think that really, really adds much. Yeah. But I do want to say reading these next chapters that we hadn't up to that up to last week's episode and, and the first episode, uh, we get a little more. I thought that everything that was like over the top sex stuff was all Weiss and Benioff. George R. R. Martin has some of that. There's like some of that that he put in there, obviously, as well. Like there's there's clearly like some problematic things that are going on in George R. R. Martin's writing as well. And I don't think that uh, I think that I was kind of putting it all on Weiss and Benioff. Right. Yeah, that's true. I do think there is some shared blame there. But uh, to me, I, I still feel like the books in general come off looking better, like looking like the choices were made more carefully and and um less exploitatively so uh and plus it's like it's written versus like you know actually having actors play these things out so i feel like it's always going to be a little more striking on the on the screen um but yeah so i mean i think we touched on that stuff a lot last last week um i'm sure we'll, we'll we'll brush up against it again here through the episodes but um, let's get into it. Let's let's get into this first episode. I think what we're going to do is do a little description of like the general plot um, very briefly. And then we're just going to touch on like things that stood out in the episode. So we won't be doing a scene by scene, but uh, hopefully we'll still hit on all the like major things we want to talk about and, and share with you guys. Yeah. So I have a synopsis of the of episode three, Lord Snow here that I'm going to read. OK. Ned joins the King's Small Council at King's Landing and learns just how poorly Westeros is being managed. Catelyn tries to covertly warn her husband, but is intercepted by an old friend, Littlefinger. Bran learns he will never walk again. He does not remember the events leading to his fall. Jon struggles to adapt to life on the wall as he trains with a number of lowborn recruits who are not impressed by his bloodline. Lord Commander Mormont asks Tyrion to plead with the king to send more men to the Night's Watch. Daenerys learns that she is pregnant and begins to stand up to Viserys. Cool. Yeah, that's the episode. Uh, I, there's an opening. There's like an opening shot. I think it was very early on. I don't know if it's the opening of the episode, but when uh, Ned is first walking into the throne room, like for the first time, and it's the introduction of the set in some ways. And it's it's such a great set. And uh, we come in and, and we see him, you know, pass through these doors. And when he enters the throne room, there Jamie Lannister is like on the steps, which is such a cool because th- like that doesn't happen in the book. But it's in reference to something that did happen in the book in history where, you know, that's where he found him during Robert's Rebellion, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's it's reminiscent of this historical scene, and then we get it. We get a great additional scene that that isn't in the book, and that's that's Jamie and Ned having this sort of confrontation in the throne room, and and uh, it bu- it builds something between these two characters that I think is a nice welcome addition to everything that goes on in King's Landing. 
yeah and you talked about added scenes i think this is a great added scene there's there's many of them that we'll talk about but the yeah. show does a great job of of really honing in on characterization and characters and and setting up where who they are and where they're from and what their motives are and then ultimately like letting us get to know the characters without having you know extreme events ha- unfolding all of the time and i think that that's a it's a good way to set up someone like cersei who will have a long history of that people will love and hate yeah and, and here we see I, these are one of those scenes that that even plays better now because how much we know about jamie that we didn't know at this point in the show you know, with his history with the Mad King, because we see Ned really laying into him about about like breaking his oath and and killing the king and and I, I remember the you know I feel like if you're a show watcher for the first time and you're watching this, you you probably are fully on Ned's side and just hate Jamie. Oh, I know, I was yeah, I hated I hated Jamie, and then he's easily one of my favorite conflicted characters. Yeah, but easily one of my favorite arcs in the show. And he does a lot of shitty stuff in season one for sure. Yeah, he's awful. Yeah, but man, like you can, you can, and and they do a brilliant job with the acting because I feel like you can see it behind his eyes as he's as he's thinking about uh, how he actually saved people, and nobody gives him credit for that um, because he. But it's like he's conflicted because he does also know he broke an oath, and we know that mm-hmm. that's one of the things with Jamie is that he's had to live with that broken oath now. Uh, and how that's affected him and, and the legacy that that's that it's given him and how he's considered this dishonorable knight now and how that I think he's really internalized that even though we, we learned that he did it for good reasons. And I want to know how you feel. Do you think that he actually 100 percent was do you think that he killed Ares because he was like he really thought that he was saving everyone or was was it partially looking out for himself because he knew that the rebellion was going going south for them um i think there i think that's the the later scene says that you know with the burn them all burn them all uh rant and him knowing about the caches of wildfire that and Ares gave the order he was gonna burn all of king's landing and so in that moment, he basically killed the guy who was about to press the the nuclear option uh, button. And so in that moment, he did save people. And I think that that was a big part of it. Now, can you say that there any of that might have been tied to the fact that, you know, it was an opportune moment and he was looking to, you know, make it so that his, his family could prevail? Sure. I bet that that was bounded up in that sum. But um I think it was mostly just to to save people. Yeah, I think he 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 felt like that was the right thing to do in that moment. I do believe that. You get the sense that Ned, well actually I know that Ned feels like Jamie having been a Kingsguard should have just gone down with the ship. That's what Ned says, but um he doesn't have all the details. He right? has well in he he wasn't in that situation. I think it's one of those things where it's easy for Ned to say you swore an oath and you should have done it. But in the same argument, he's 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 like shitting on Jamie for just standing by while Ares killed his father and brother. Mm-hmm. But Jamie swore an oath to like to not stand up to the king, right? So he would have had to break his oath to do anything about it. So you know how can Ned say like how could you just stand by while that was happening? Because he would have had to break his oath to do anything about it. So mm-hmm. I think it's easy for Ned to say, like, to pick and choose, like, oh, you should have, you should have just followed your oath through it, no matter what. But if Ned was in that situation, 
you know, what would have Ned have done, honestly? Because well, I, I, I think Ned would have broken his oath, too. Well, to extrapolate out on that, we kind of get a mini version of that when when Ned doesn't agree with what Robert wants to do with with Daenerys yeah. in the assassination. He breaks the he's technically he's he's taken an oath to serve Robert and whatever he wants done. And he's saying, no, I don't want to. I'm breaking the oath. I'm handing this back to you and I'm leaving. So really, you can see that he probably would have done the same as Jamie. Ned's idealism and his honor is absolutely something that gets examined throughout the course of these events and and we see that it is not unfailing and we see that he can't just have this simple view of the world and, and it won't work in every situation and I, I think that's some of the brilliance of this writing on Martin's part the fact that he's able to take and and, and that's something that I'm is more of a larger uh, point I was I was gonna make but um, throughout these episodes we see Ned he makes the right decision almost every time in my opinion. We see Ned constantly making the right decision, yet we know well, where he this went, leads. I was going to say, I think he makes one wrong decision. Okay, so that'll be interesting to talk about. Where does he actually make the wrong decision? Well, I'll be interested in when we get there. But um, So since we're talking about the scene so much, I did want to ask you, what do you think about the theory that Bran wargs into Ares and, and kind of gives the whole Hodor moment where Hodor keeps saying, hold the door, hold the door, and it turns into Hodor. What do you think about the fact that Bran is inside Ares and, and doing the burn them all, burn them all thing? Do you think there's any any sort of any sort of truth to that maybe, that theory that, that Bran is, is going through the history and warging into people at certain times and doing this kind of stuff, or do you think it's just the Hodor moment? Yeah, so you're talking about there's kind of like a Bran, the time walker theory where he he has sort of been there for everything, right? And he maybe he even is the reason the Mad King went mad um, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. I mean, it's dark um, to think that, and it's definitely very Terminator-ish because it's very like... Uh, John Connor. Yeah, it's the paradox, right? It's time paradoxes um, are, are being introduced. It's very sci-fi. It's a very sci-fi plot introduced mm-hmm. into our fantasy. Uh, which is kind of weird, but I mean, Martin's a huge sci-fi guy too, so I can see it. I mean, he also has he- a lot of horror influences strongly, you know, with, with our Franken-monster we get later. Uh, mm-hmm. We see... Well, the walkers, you know, the White Walkers. Yeah, the White Walkers are ice zombies. We Bruce Bolton is basically a vampire. <laughs> um, in the books. Yeah, in the books. More strongly in the books than in the show, but, you know, debate- debatably, maybe he even is a skin-changing vampire in the books. Um, it's, yeah, it's... Uh, it's possible. I guess I'm not a huge fan of that theory. Um, but then at the, on the other hand, it's like, where is the brand storyline going? Um, if, if not there. Yeah. So, so I mean, there's also the theory that brand ultimately is, is the night King. Right. I don't know. So man. it's like, it all loops back around and like, maybe it's like, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, we, I think we're going to run out of time just to talk about this episode. So we should move on to some other stuff that happens in this episode. Yeah. Uh, something specific is Jon Snow at the wall now and he's full on training. Uh, and the way that they build the relationships between these characters and how they all hate him and they all attack him. Uh, ultimately, just for them all, to, for him to realize that if he's the bigger man, then it shows leadership and it shows like that brotherhood will start to f- form and then they'll all watch each other's backs. Um, I always love that about the Night's Watch. It's just like this, that kind of military mentality, uh, brotherhood. Like you're not fighting necessarily for the greater good. You're fighting for that guy standing next to you to make sure he makes it out. Yeah. And we see, uh, I know Donald Noy is the blacksmith. He's the one-armed blacksmith in the books. And he's the one who sort of gives John a rude awakening about, 
you know, these men who are here aren't highborn like you. They weren't trained by a man at arms. They know how to fight in the streets, but not, you know, not in the sword. Um, and that's sort of like the rude awakening. And it also establishes Donald Noy as a character who's, who's a pretty interesting one in the books. He, uh, he's famous for forging, uh, Robert Baratheon's hammer. Uh, he, he was, had a storied, you know, career, I guess. And then he lost his arm and ended up taking the black. Those scenes are all given to Tyrion in the show, and Donald Noy is sort of written off. But I'm kind of fine with that because it's a uh, there's a certain amount of economy of characters that you have to you have to strive for in a show, right? And yeah. we are, we need to establish that Tyrion and John have a friendly relationship, and why? And this is a this is a good opportunity to do to to sort of give him this because i mean in the books Tyrion definitely gives him great advice when he's at the wall so he they're able to make it into a moment where he saves him from getting basically murdered by his brothers uh on day one <laughs> later on right for for yeah for outshining them in the in the yard um yeah so i like that change ultimately i guess is my my final point there i do recognize it's a change and and it's one of those things that i think was a smart one Okay, so episode four is called Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Tyrion makes saddle modifications for Bran that will allow the paraplegic boy to ride. Ned searches for clues to the unexpected death of his mentor and predecessor, John Aaron, and, in the process, discovers King Robert's illegitimate son. Robert and his guests witness a tournament honoring Ned. John takes measures to protect Samuel Tar Tarly, an awkward and friendless boy, from the abuse of the Night's Watchmen. A frustrated Viserys clashes with his newly empowered sister. Sansa dreams of life as a queen while Arya envisions a far different future. At a chance encounter in a roadside tavern, Catelyn rallies her father's allies and has Tyrion arrested for conspiring to murder her son. To touch on kind of the end of last episode, some of this episode, mm -hmm. Tyrion and, and Jon's last interaction together, I, I much preferred it in the book. Yeah, it, They shared like this moment where Jon was saying like, you helped me so much and, and Tyrion says no I didn't I just I just gave you some some words of wisdom some words and and basically John says could you share those words with Bran yeah and kind of help him out as well I love that interaction I love the the handshake and in the show it's fun because it's like he's pissing off the wall and then they share a moment they, they do where shake like, hands really, they shake hands and I, they say like he basically they they talk about how they're friendly with each one another and how they like each other and then shake hands and that's it yeah because I think I think uh Tyrion just takes it on himself to share the saddle thing. Um, right. Yeah. He just decides that he's going to try to help out Bran. Yeah. We, it's it less specifically tied to that scene. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those kind of like, yeah, I agree. I think the book d does it slightly better. Uh, speaking of the Night's, Night's Watch, though, uh, this is the introduction of Samuel Tarly, who I love as a character. And I also, I love Sam in fantasy novels. Yeah, that's true. And he is very Samwise Gamgee, isn't he? In he a is. Way. I, I, it's got to be a little bit of a nod, right? I think Martin has said it said as much. I, I believe. Yeah. Um, I want to see Samwell on the on the Iron Throne. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> I think that he would be our our greatest leader. So let's get that going. Uh, there was an interesting bit that I hadn't noticed um, until this rewatch, uh, where he's in the book. Uh, Samwell gives the story of why he joined the Night's Watch. And in mm -hmm. the story, he says that his father was skinning a, a stag and was holding its heart when he told him that, you know, if if we go on a hunt, 
you know, you're, there's going to be an accident, and that's what I'll tell your mother, and you have to join the Night's Watch. Now, we get that story in the show, but it, it, the stag thing is, is, is omitted, and that's because they use it later. We haven't seen it yet, but they use it later when they introduce Tywin. So I thought that was interesting that they kind of, like, cherry-picked the scene that they liked that was told through this character, and they said, you know what, we're actually going to make this a scene, and we're going to have it be Tywin Lannister. Great introduction. It's so a great, it's a cool scene, right? Like, he's skinning the stag, he's, he's, he's like, it's very bloody as he's talking to, to Jamie. I think I was like, oh, that's where they got the idea for the scene, because I felt like it was a wholly invented scene, but it's not really, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just been stolen from this other backstory <laughs> um, and, and, yeah. and introduced here, which I, I think is, cle- it's, cle- it's a clever way to, to maintain that scene in school. Something about John saving Sam, you can already see the leadership and him realizing people's worth, not just through like the physical strength of being at the Night's Watch. He realizes it's like Sam is someone to be protected yeah. and we're going to watch over him and he's going to help us in other ways. I do like that there's uh, the, when Sam's first walking up to to stand with him on the wall, John kind of looks away from him and, and like sort of groans. Um, he's like, oh, this fucking guy. And it's not until he learns Sam's backstory where he like truly because like he took pity on him, but he still was like, man, you shouldn't be here. This is not where you don't you should not be at the wall. Well, it's the kinship of not belonging anywhere. Yeah. When he finds out that he has no option. Exactly. There's like he's like, OK, now I now I'm going to truly stand behind you because of your backstory, um, which, I, I, yeah, I like that. It's more true to life, I think. And and uh, it's definitely right out of the books, too. It's I think we, I love that we're seeing John grow up. You know what I mean? Like every one of these mm-hmm. moments is showing is showing John, like, learn about the way the world is. This is, I think, an example for him to back up what he's learned about Tyrion, which is just because you're a true born heir to a house, like a major house, doesn't mean your life is necessarily going to be rosy. And also he learns at the same time that the commoners who, you know, are uh, his brothers now, in many ways, weren't as privileged as he was. So in a lot of ways, he has to sort of check his privilege, right? And and growing up, even in his, his, his sort of like less than spot in the Stark family is still way better than most people ever get. Mm-hmm. And so he's forced to confront that as well. There is a scene here that I wanted to just because we we talked about the sex and and nudity. There is a scene that comes up here with Viserys that's added that I think is one of the most one of the more egregious. There's one that stands out in my mind later we haven't gotten to yet with uh, Littlefinger, where a phrase got coined in reference to the show and it's sex position, and uh, we see that for sure in a Viserys scene here where he's giving the like they're giving the history of the Targaryen line while he's in a bathtub with uh one of the one of the Dothraki girls I you know I can't remember which what her name is if we even know it we're going to give you all this backstory and we're going to make it interesting because they're naked <laughs> essentially and yeah. uh it's 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 kind of grown worthy but yeah it's like I could see that they thought they were being really clever I do think it's interesting that they got called out for it <laughs> right like at a certain uh-huh. point you can only do that so many times before people will notice that you're doing it right and like I, I said it in one of the other episodes, but it feels very much of that. Like if you think of the other shows that were on HBO at the time or other major like uh, subscription based cable networks and things like that. Yeah. You think of shows like True Blood and like Spartacus. There Spartacus, were other shows yeah. that were just doing this exact same thing at the exact yeah. same time period, right in 2010, 2011, that were getting away with it. And I think the massive popularity of Game of Thrones had had people who had more diverse perspective on stuff maybe come in and just say like hey this is this is clearly they're doing something to manipulate 
the audience in a certain way and they're completely right it's it's uh you know it's distracting you with one thing to 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 dump a bunch of information on you and make this the scene see it feel really uh engaging yeah so in this in these situations i don't find it like problematic as much as it is lazy (laughs) i guess is where i'm trying to say like it's like they couldn't come up with a better way to make the scene interesting so they just they just sexed it up and it just feels kind of lazy to me but it does show viserys being a total asshole at the end too again of course yeah well but he's like kind of he's kind of not throughout the the majority of the scene and then he turns at the end to be an asshole which like we already knew he's an asshole so Mm -hmm. i don't know it's well let's talk about the this him and daenerys relationship crumbling and and how she's yeah. starting to stand up for herself, finding she's she's feeling empowered. Yeah, I I think it's cool to see her her growing. It is unfortunate that it's kind of it, it feels a little bit prob- problematic. Just that like she's becoming empowered because she's with this super powerful man. Kind of for now, it kind of feels like that's where her power lies. I think that that works for the story though, because that issue is exactly the problem she faces when Khal Drogo dies later. But, well, that's what that's where it flips it on its head, and that's where it makes it. I think a little. I think that that that's where it really becomes unique and interesting. Well, so Game of Thrones is all about power, right? Like that's the thesis of this show is like, where does power come from? And, and in fact, it's 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 spelled out eventually. I think Varys has a has like a talk about it. We haven't gotten there yet. But who who holds who holds the power in this parable of the man with the sword and the. And I think there's like a a man who with money and then like a an honored lord or something and there's like a cell sword in the room and like who holds the power is it the man with the sword is it the man with the money is it you know and it's and he says it's a, it's a it's an illusion it's shadows on the wall and um it's really interesting to think about like where does the power lie and I think that's the thing with Danny here yeah her power lies in her husband yet regardless of the fact that it, that's where it lies she still has it. And so a lot of it's like it's it, it lies in the hearts and minds of people. And, you know, later when she loses Cal Drogo, she's able to retain some of that power, um, I think partly through obviously the magical means um, that we'll see at the end of the show. But I think that's something to touch back on, you know, because she 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 does sort of inherit some of her husband's power. There's a certain amount of her earning her own respect through the Dothraki. Like she's doing things that they agree they like and they're she she's basically like showing and and yeah. quanti- like to to them showing her why she's to be respected and and why she's powerful and like yeah. Jorah even at one at one point is like you're beginning to speak like a queen and so she's coming into it on her own as well um, but it's just it's also Caldrogo until until Caldrogo dies it's it's really tied to him I think yeah I agree with that um, so another another part here is I think we get the start of the the hands turning. Which I love how Ned is like, you can call it the hands turn all you want. It's not my tournament. It's the king's tournament. <laughs> <laughs> but they keep going, they keep calling it. <laughs> yeah. He's so conflicted by it. And and he's like, I will not allow this. And, and I think the last episode or or in this episode, he's like, I will not allow it to go to happen. It's it's an expense we can't afford. Yeah. And ultimately, like they say, everything Robert gets everything he wants. So it goes off even though he doesn't want it to. Yeah, and we're getting we're getting into the heart of Ned's uh, investigation here. It's really getting going. And I, I love that there is this mystery plot in the heart of this fantasy novel, right? And, and like, why did, why was John Aaron murdered? What's the breadcrumbs we can follow for the information that got him killed? And 
and and we can see that there's like this important squire that that Ned needs to talk to, but then he dies before he can talk to him. So it's very mystery plot ish, right, going on at the same time here. And it's in in some senses, Game of Thrones is a blend of of genres here, right? Like it brings in that mystery thrill, thriller element, and to great effect, I think. I think you could say Game of Thrones basically encompasses almost every genre. Yeah, ultimately. In some it ways, really does. It's, it's a blend in almost every way. Clearly, mostly fantasy. We don't see a really pure romance in here, though. <laughs> that turns out well, at least. Yeah. Well, Jamie and Cersei. <laughs> yeah, you know, the old Jamie Cersei twin relationship and twin cest uh, romance, sure. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, but no, I agree with you. It does have a lot of 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 those uh, of genre, of those genres, and in in it's played with like the idea of Sansa, like she wants the fairy tale romance so badly that she's willing to overlook so much of what's going on with Joffrey. So how about Catelyn rallying her father's allies in the, yeah. in the tavern? That's a I, that's a, such a cool scene in the book. I think um, to me, it didn't quite live up for it in the show. I, I'm curious to know what you thought of it. I still enjoyed it in the show, uh, but I agree. I mean, I think some of these like major scenes feel like they have a lot more weight to them because uh, seeing them, I think sometimes is less impressive. Like see- seeing a couple of guys stand up and point swords versus your imagination of how she's like this bannerman and this bannerman and everyone's coming together. Yeah. Uh, but it is so. As much as we like Tyrion, it's it's cool to see him as the villain fairly early on in the show. As far as her plotline is concerned. And and to see him at sword point first, we I think at least me during my first viewing, I was very much stark. I was like, everything stark. They yeah. can do no wrong. So I was on her side and I was like, whatever she thinks that that Tyrion may have done, let's let's he may be guilty here. So let's let's hear her out. Yeah. So I would argue that this is one of the most egregious errors made by the Stark family. I think this is this is a big mistake. Honestly. Well, and I would also say that it's not the Stark family. It's Catelyn. Yeah, well, I mean, as she's one of the heads of the Stark family, so... But yeah, and, and, and Ned Ned makes the honorable decision to, to own it and say that he ordered it when he clearly didn't. Um, and he backs it up, which, like, you know, like, I get in that moment that's, like, really the only option you have. Um, but truthfully, like, this is kind of a dumb move um, because... And, and Tyrion points it out. He says, why... Like, I'm not a stupid guy. Why would I hire someone to, to try and kill your son and use my own dagger? It makes no sense. And when he says that, she doesn't really have a good answer for him. And I think that's something that she should have thought about and should have led her to realize that it's not Tyrion. And I think some of it is like she's caught up in the she's caught up in the reputation of who the imp is, right? Like she's believed the press about how he's such a terrible guy. And some of that is just pure reputation, right? And I think she's caught up in that to where she wants to believe, like when she, as soon as she hears that it was his dagger, she's ready. She's leaping to the to the belief that he's the one who did it. I don't know, like it's like she blames the Lannisters, and mm-hmm. so her eagerness to blame the Lannisters leads her to to capture Tyrion. Whereas I don't think she's she's fully separated out him from the rest of the family and realized that he might not be fully in line with their thinking. Um, cause she's, I think she just arrests him cause he's like the nearest Lannister she has and she has this proof she can lay at his feet, but it just mm-hmm. doesn't, it doesn't fully line up to me. And, and to me, she didn't think it all the way through. So I think yeah. it's a mistake. Well, I think her, I, I agree with you. And I think that that's a big thing is, is throughout Game of Thrones is that people just assume that they're 
if you're whatever your name is, you're going to go along with whatever that house is currently doing. Yeah. So I think like Tyrion's an example of somebody who's obviously not usually in line with his his family 100%. But I also think that she was so blinded by just the passion of her of her son being attacked. Like she was I think that even if it wasn't Tyrion with the reputation, I think that whoever it was, she was going to blindly like just like pursue that person uh given the given the opportunity because i think that's part of her character because i think that she's like because she makes this rash decision and like you said it it is ultimately it is the starks but it's catelyn and she doesn't necessarily fall in line with like the stark values and and kind of like motives whereas i think like a true stark like someone like ned would have potentially like thought it out a little more and and not acted so rashly she she was ready to to jump uh given the opportunity and like you said i think it is i think it's a little premature she could have thought it through a little better yeah, and one of the reasons it is such a bad decision, in my opinion, is we see the fallout um, because in the next episode we we can talk about it, um, the fallout with Jamie, and once he finds yeah. out what's happened. Uh, so, in fact, let's. I think we're ready to move on to the next episode here. Episode five is the Wolf and the Lion. Ned refuses to participate in Robert's plan to assassinate the pregnant Daenerys Targaryen and re- and resigns as Robert's hand, angering him. Catelyn and Tyrion, whom she has taken as her prisoner arrive at her sister Lysa's home in the Eyrie. News of Tyrion's capture reaches King's Landing, where Jaime Lannister demands answers from Ned. A vengeful Jaime orders Ned's men killed and fights Ned until Jaime's man stabs Ned in the leg from behind, leaving him wounded. And this is a difference. Yeah. So In the book, he falls off a horse. Yeah, in the book, he falls off a horse. Also in the book, Jaime leaves. He doesn't actually stay and fight. Um, right. So there's there's some things that are like... I, you know, we, we always say like, what was better, you know, who, what was the better decision? I actually like the way this scene plays out better in the show. Really? I was going to say the opposite. Really? Really? So I like that, uh, Jamie stands and fights and he says, take him alive is all he says. Um, but I like, to me, it's like Jamie being a little more brash, um, which I think plays into his character, him. He's eager to fight in the show and wants to fight Ned and, 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 and actually have that one-on-one with him. I think he's eager for it. And so I like seeing that. Um, it's kind of dumb that his man steps up and stabs him when, like, you, he should know better. But we see that he, like, basically knocks him out with the blunt, you know, blunt of his sword or the end of his sword yeah. because he's like, damn it, you, you fucked this up for me. And then, yeah, I mean, like, ultimately him ordering the death of his men is a cold-blooded thing, definitely a dastardly thing for him to do. But he also, he, like, he does it himself. He kills Jory himself in, in the show, whereas in the book, mm-hmm. it's just like he gets he gets swarmed by Lannister men. So yeah, so what's your reason for liking the book version better, I guess, is my question. I think it was mostly the the second part of what you were just saying is just like in the book, Jamie is, he thinks it through. You know, like we were just talking about with Catelyn, I think he thinks it through. Like what is the fallout of, this, of these actions? And he knows, I think that he realizes that if he does fight ned or attack ned in some way and if he is killed then then there's no way they're getting Tyrion back and to to see that guy jump in and stab ned in the leg it's just it, to me it seems a little ridiculous because mm. th- in what way could they have could that person have possibly thought that that's what jamie wanted i mean yeah just because he's like he could be like i'm gonna i'm gonna protect my lord here and and i have an opportunity to to end this thing so i'm gonna i'm gonna take it i can see somebody being dumb in that moment i guess we, so in the book, I think we get really played up how how great of a swordsman Jamie is, and how how smart Ned Stark is, and yeah. and I think having the two of them actually clash in that scene is less exciting than a fight between them would have actually been in my imagination. Mm. And I think that ha- like keeping it a mystery, George R. R. Martin 
keeping that away from us rather than showing them actually fight in some capacity keeping the what what would that be like away from us i think kind of leads to more legends and and like you think of jamie a little more highly or you think of ned like you're it, it kind of leads lends itself to that debate like ned or jamie well that shows i mean this is an early difference in the show and the books right like on display we get martin's decision is to completely withhold that confrontation from us and right. and instead of seeing it ned gets injured falling off a horse and so now we're not going to be able to ever, ever see a healthy ned versus versus jamie which is like a complete subversion. Yeah, it's a complete subversion. Whereas in the show, we get a taste of it, and then it gets taken away from us. Um, so yeah, I think it just shows the difference in, in, in Martin's writing style, because that is Martin to a T, to completely withhold something like that that we thought for sure we're going to get. Right. If he does that with the Clegane Bowl, I'm going to die. I'll die. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, that in, in, like we talked about last episode, like every now and then Martin comes through and he gives you the thing that you, you thought he wasn't ever going to give you, and... Um, it's those moments that can be really exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the other things I would just want to say about this scene is it's, it's, it's another moment that was in the trailer that looks so good. And that's, um, mm-hmm. Jamie drawing his sword and like all of his men lowering their spears at the same moment. I remember that right. was in that first trailer or, or maybe like the second trailer. Um, cause I think the first one might've just been a teaser, but regardless, it was, it was an early moment in the trailers that just got me so excited for the show. Cause that was like. The look of Jamie Lannister was so perfect, and, and I think that was a really good casting. And yeah, just that scene was epic feeling, right? And I was excited to see it. I think it is this episode where we get another added scene where where Robert is having sex with a bunch of prostitutes and, and Jamie is standing guard outside. And we get this scene where, where uh, Jory comes up and talks to him about, about a battle that they were in together at the Pike, right? Yeah, and I love that Jamie all of a sudden then remembers him. He's like, "Yeah, I do remember you," because like that's we just show that like it, it, Jamie he really is all about the like glory of of battle. But yeah, continue what you're saying. I I just thought that that was such a great interaction where he's like, "I don't remember you," and he's yeah. kind of so dismissive. And then he's like, "We were in a battle together," and and then they're like old war buddies. And he's like, "You remember that moment where uh, Thoris of Mirror charged through the breach with his flaming sword?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That that's such a fun addition and and kind of a nod to some details in the book yeah. that we get, but we don't see in the show until a little bit later. Yeah, it's cool, and it's such a perfect Jamie moment. They do a lot with this character um, because a lot of Jamie, like people may not remember if it's been a while since you've read the books, but a lot of this Jamie stuff comes in book three. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where we really start. I think this might be the book, unless I'm misremembering. I'm pretty sure it's book three, maybe book two, but I'm pretty sure it's book three where we actually get Jamie's point of view for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so much starts to happen once we get his point of view and we learn his backstory and we learn. But instead, they're they're setting that all up early here. So right. Jamie is more of a sympathetic character in the show, I think, than he is in the book, where he's just kind of this villain off off page a lot of the time. Um, there's, I think it's in this episode, too, where, where uh, Robert tr- calls him in and he's talking to Barristan Selmy and they're talking about their first kill. Right. And uh, you, we can see Barristan's respect he has for Jamie, I think, is another telling moment, right, where, where they have, we have respect for each other. But, but Barristan definitely says, like, I was there the day that you killed your first your first bandit or whatever. And he he was like, you were, you know, yeah, you were talented even then kind of thing. Yeah. Just the respect between between the warriors. Like, I mean, Barristan Selmy is so awesome as a character as well, especially yeah. in the book. I think they do a great job with them in the show, too. I really do. Well, I, my I, the reason I said that was just because, like, I wasn't a huge fan of how he went down in the show. 
Oh, well, sure. Yeah, that, that could be true. But we're talking early, early here. I think right, this yeah. is good. Yeah, um, they do. I'm sorry. They do a good job with his character. And I think that the, the actor pulls off a great performance as him. And he seems like he's got that old school. Like he he Ned talks about how his father, Ned's father would talk uh, about how great Selmy was and how he was like the greatest swordsman he'd ever seen. And yeah. and he's he wasn't one to exaggerate about when it came to combat. That was also another yeah. great added scene. So before we move past this scene completely, um, this made me wonder, and I wanted to ask you, where does Robert Baratheon in his prime stack up against a lot of these other great warriors? I mean, I, just as, in terms of like, the, the, for me, I think that you got to talk about strength versus skill versus like, are we just like having a melee? Is it one yeah, on yeah, one? Like, yeah, yeah. Melee. Let's just say like, yeah, melee. Okay. Um I mean, I think the mountain's definitely in there. I think I, I, what would be interesting is to see someone like Robert Baratheon versus the mountain. Yeah, because it's strength versus strength. Uh, but I mean, yeah, there's a lot to be said for someone like someone like Arthur Dane or like Selmy or um, Jamie. Jamie, yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I, I would love to see. I mean, or the Viper. Um, yeah, Red who Viper. who also was was another because he technically beat the mountain. And and, so. and like ultimately, I think. Part of the fun that Martin plays with here is the answer to those questions are kind of less fun than the thinking about, like than thinking about these, like what would happen if if we saw Robert Baratheon in his prime against Jamie Lannister or against uh, the Mountain um, or against Khal Drogo, for example, being intru- you That's know, another like great a potential one, yeah. warrior. Like where does he line up against Jamie Lannister or somebody like that? Um, these are all really fascinating kind of matches and, and, and of course we're not going to get them. And, and, and I think one of the reasons is, like I said, I think it's more interesting to think about rather than like, if it actually played out, somebody wins, somebody loses. And and in some, some sense, it's kind of less interesting. I think to, yeah. And I think to answer your question in, in some sort of way, I think I would put Robert Baratheon like top three strongest character in his prime, strongest character in the show, because he basically with his might took on anyone who would come at him and 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 revolted and and led his revolution and took over the seven kingdoms. Yeah, and and I agree with that. And uh I think it's also important to differentiate between show Robert because a lot of times like if you see the show Robert, it, I think there's a there's a reading of it where you feel like it's a lot of bluster. Mm-hmm. Um because he's just isn't a very impressive figure in the show. Um cuz he's, you know, a lot shorter, doesn't seem to be quite as powerful. They get the fat part down, you know, um, and I love the actor, you know, I think it's Robert Addy or, or something's his name. Um, Mark Addy. I don't know. Mark I probably Addy. got that wrong, but um, I think he does a great job, um, but he's not he's not very imposing. Um, and the book book, Robert is like six, six. We have to remember. And he's supposed to be this huge figure. And uh, yeah, I think at the heart of that character is a warrior who wanted to fight and he wanted to win. And then he got everything he ever wanted, and now he's being sort of, uh, sort of like that's the poison now is that he's gotten everything he wants and he has nothing left to fight for, and now he just is faced with the you know boredom of having to rule, and it's really it's really t- done too much you know it's it's too much for him he can't he's not built for that, and this viewing had me thinking a lot about Robert and how had he just been more of an engaged leader or more of a because he seems like a caring man ultimately he was like bloodlust he was after the war and he that he was in his prime and he was he was in his element when he was fighting 
but at the same time he seems like he genuinely cares about being a good king in like at least in in the things that he says and it just makes me think of a like an alternate timeline or ultimate universe where he he is you know engaged and he doesn't let himself be surrounded by yes men and 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 people who are who are not looking for the same thing he is i don't know that i believe he ever could have been a great king um, I think he was way more caught up in wanting vengeance for Lyanna and then just wanting to win. Um, I think, and, and I don't know that he ever really wanted to rule. Now I, there is, I think an alternate where you could, you could think like if he, if Lyanna had loved him and they had ended up together, could she have been somebody who, to, who could have like helped him to like rein it in and actually care? And like been that been that figure in his life that he needed, um, or would he have? Because we even, I think there's a part in the book where where she says like he's never going to change, and Robert says, "Oh, you never you never know. Once you get he gets married to you, he'll change his ways and he'll be a good man." But Leanna wasn't convinced, and she kind of said like he'll, he's never going to be different than he is now. What I love about that is it comes right back to Jon Snow, and it comes right back to that. And like it's so funny because like I feel like at that the point in the show where we got the reveal of of Jon Snow's parentage, it's like it had, mm-hmm. so much had happened and so much had moved on that I think a lot of people were like, "Wait, why is that important?" <laughs> exactly. But it is the most important thing. It's the heart of this all. It's what started Robert's rebellion, which is what started everything, which is why um, you know, it's why Cersei Lannister was married to Robert Baratheon and, you know, as shown through the show, like why she, why their relationship could have never worked, um, because Robert was, was in love with another woman and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it would have never happened anyway, but I think the show wants us to believe that it had a shot, um, had that not been true. Um, because the implication is that Cersei actually did care for him at, at one point. I think that we get that in the next episode. And speaking of Cersei makes me think of, John Aaron and we're supposed to see John Aaron especially because he raised Ned and Robert we're supposed to see him as this like really honorable and really knowledgeable person and yet he makes a lot of mistakes he he appoints Cersei like he appoints that that marriage between Cersei and and Robert which like you say may have worked out in different circumstances but he also as much as he wasn't I just can't believe that he wasn't even able to rein in Robert Baratheon because he was like a father to him. So for him to to just not listen to John Aaron is really surprising and the fact that, you know, they're going bankrupt because they're they're borrowing from everyone and they're just hemorrhaging money and it's just surprising that a, a man like that that we don't know that much about, but I always thought of him as a character who would be similar to Ned and just be like I'm walking away if if you're not going to listen to me. But it seems like he put up with it and and continued to just let him get time after time make the wrong decision. Yeah. So I have three quick things that I want to touch on um, for this scene before we move on, or for this episode before we move on. Um, one is the added scene of uh, Littlefinger and Varys in the throne room, and they're sort of like sparring. They're sparring, but they're they're using like information and what each person knows and what the other one doesn't. And and I love that there's this kind of back and forth between them, and they just have a great on-screen chemistry and their sort of like animosity but respect they have for each other. Um, that really works. And I think Varys is a character that was good in the books, um, but I love his portrayal in the show. I think that, he, that that actor really nails it, and it's very good. And it did a great job of showing audiences these two characters at, at odds with each other, even more so than the book that does 
until yeah. a little bit later maybe and I, I yeah like you say it's such a huge scene and when you think of Varys and Littlefinger you think of that scene yeah uh there was a few things we so we talked about I think in our fellowship episode uh for the movie i talked about some of the like hollywood cliches that always happens in fantasy and mm-hmm. i just wanted to touch on a few of them here um that that stood out to me that definitely like game of thrones is not above them um there's a few i'll just go through them quickly um we see uh nobody wears a helmet in the show uh when they're fighting they're all they all just got to have the actors pretty faces out which we talked about that um there's a moment where bronze sheaths a bloody sword um, which I cringed. I saw that, yeah. I cringed because you would never want to do that. It's very bad. Um, that's a good way to have uh, a sword that doesn't draw when you need it next time um, as the blood dries and it gets stuck in the scabbard. Um, mm-hmm. Not to mention it's going to tarnish the blade, right? Yeah, it's not good for the blade, but then also, yeah, I mean, like it's going to gum up in there. It's going to dry and it's going to be bad. Um, you would definitely want to clean that blade. These are all little nitpicks, right? Um, there's another thing where uh, Jamie and, and Ned's fight. They do the, what's called, I think it's uh, like the lightsaber push, I think is what it's been coined as, because um, it's famous for Star, Star Wars does this a lot, where two characters lock swords and then push at each other and like kind of like mug each other over their swords. But it's so dramatic and so cinematic. Like this you, is a very of, TV so, thing. It's, this doesn't happen in actual sword play. Um, it would but it's be dumb in, like, for it you, to happen. Any, anything that has sword sword fighting in it, usually there's going to be that push moment though, because yeah. it's like it's so good to get both ca- characters in frame at at each other's throats. And is it good though, or is it cliche? <laughs> well, I don't see it yeah, going no, away anytime soon. No, you're probably right. I just it's just it's just a very unrealistic sword moment. Yeah, there's just a few things like that that I just felt like I had to sort of highlight that, like, this show still does. Um, and, yeah, you know, uh, uh, the other one, the helmet thing, that's never going away. As much as, like, mm-hmm. that's the primary. We talked about, like, if you could wear one piece of armor in a battle, you want to wear a helmet because your head is the most prote- most important part of your body to protect. Yet we see so many times people fighting without helmets and going into battle without helmets. And it's just because you want to see the actor's face. And I get it. Yeah. And I know that it's not going away. Okay. But that's nitpicking aside. Um, if you want to, if you do want to get more of that sort of like swordplay nitpicking, there's a YouTube channel called Scala Gladiatoria, and I'll put a link in the in the in the show notes for, for it. Um, and he breaks down a lot of these fights in different TV shows and movies, and he'll talk about like where it's re- realistic and where it's not. And he gets into a lot of this like these little things that are are like not historically accurate. Cool channel, I really like it. Um, but so the one final thing I want to raise, I'm going to raise now, but I think I want to talk about it at the very end of the episode uh, as our final thing. And that is the idea that George R.R. R. Martin has, through the success he's had in his career, this occurred to me while I was watching it, but like, has he put himself in a position where he is now basically the Robert Baratheon of fantasy? <laughs> do you like that oh god yeah i, I actually really like that That's funny. <laughs> do you like that observa- observation i don't know if it's wow. fair but i want to i want to talk i want to like unpack that a little bit at the very end yeah that sounds cool okay so let's let's get into the uh to the final episode here that we covered okay episode six is called a golden crown robert reappoints ned as hand and tasks him with running affairs until robert returns from hunting Villagers from River Run arrive in the throne room with news of atrocities committed by raiders who Ned deduces were led by Gregor Clegane, a Lannister retainer. Ned sentences Gregor to death and sends a message to Tywin Lannister summoning him to a trial. Ned decides to send Sansa, who is now reconciled with Joffrey, and Arya back to Winterfell. 
Ned discovers that Joffrey and his siblings are not Robert's biological children. Bran, while out testing his new saddle, is attacked by, the wild by wildlings. In the Vale, Tyrion demands a trial by combat, which Lysa grants. She chooses Sir Vardis, and Tyrion asks for a champion. The sellsword and mercenary Bronn volunteers, kills Vardis, and thereby obtains Tyrion's release. Meanwhile, Viserys becomes enraged with Drogo for not honoring his promise and threatens to kill Daenerys' unborn child. Drogo kills Viserys himself by pouring molten gold onto his head. So this is a great episode, and a lot happens in it. So yeah, let's let's talk about it. What was the last thing you said? So I do want to say, I one of the things that I've always loved is that they can't spill blood in in Vaisdothrak, and and the fact that he pours the pours the gold on his head to kill him without spilling any blood has always been a, like such a great detail to me. Yeah, I don't know. I I have always felt like I don't I don't think he would die immediately from this. I think he would die eventually, but I think it would be a long agonizing death, probably due to infection. Um, really you don't think it would burn it, it wouldn't burn through the skin and into this burn the bone and get in there i don't think so i think melt uh gold melts at a pretty low temperature compared to a lot of other metals i just i think it would i think he'd get really nasty third degree burns and then i think it would cool and harden and then he'd have this like hardened case of gold over third degree burns that are really really bad i think he'd i think he'd be i I just think he'd be in terrible agony for like hours if not days and then eventually die mm-hmm. um i don't think there'd be any coming back from it and i think it's easier just to have him fall drop dead in the moment but i just don't see because it's like nothing no vital organs are actually getting killed here you know what i mean like it, it would have to seep through his skull to actually which i don't think it would do i think this is all soft tissue damage and it's bad, but honestly, it, could, it might even be infection, infection that eventually kills him. Um, but it would be, it would be, it would be fucking nasty. And and I definitely think he dies. But yeah, I, I don't think he dies in this moment. But I could be wrong. I just know that like, I spent a long time in the ICU after my car accident, and there was a guy next to me who I would hear all the time who had been badly burned. He had third degree burns like all over his body because, and oh. I believe this is true. I think I heard that um, he was he had like a like a canister of gasoline and he like poured tried to pour it on the fire or something. And like the canister itself exploded in his hands and he was covering gasoline and had third degree burns all over his body. And you know what I mean? Like he was still alive. So, uh, yeah, metal is definitely like, you can't get away from it in that sense. But, um, yeah, I think it, I think it eventually would cool and he probably wouldn't have died. But anyway, that's getting pretty gruesome. Let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, man. Brutal. Um, but yeah, so, uh, I want to talk about the mountain a little bit here. Cause I think we kind of glossed over him, him and Sander and their backstory and him, you know, killing the horse, chopping its head off nearly and huge moment. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big moment. Sander getting cheered by the crowd, which I loved cause he, I, he had this perfect expression in the show where he like, doesn't know what to do. And even in the book, it talks about how it's like the first time that's ever happened. Right. Like the small folk yeah. actually cheering for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's just him standing up to his brother. Now, uh, one major difference in this touching on last episode we get the backstory through Littlefinger whereas in the book it's actually Sander himself who tells Sansa Sansa. yeah yeah so that's a little different um what did you think of that change well I think that I uh, so I don't know if it's just book or I can't remember if it's really played up in the show but there is this like like for some reason Sandor has this soft spot for Sansa and Mm -hmm. I think that this is setting that up for, yeah, for the, in the re- book for the rest of the book 
Yeah. And, um, and I think that's kind of something that's lacking. So if it, if it is in the show where, cause he does have like that, it's like, I don't know if it's, he's attracted to her or if it's, or if it's more of like a fatherly thing trying to protect her, but he definitely has some affection for Sansa. And I think this is setting that up. Yeah. I think in the show is definitely more like fatherly, almost protective kind of thing. Whereas I think in the book, there's some implication that maybe there is actually an attraction there, which is definitely, you know, weird. <laughs> um, but sometimes that's, that that's I don't know, could just be that like Sansa is inferring that or something. I, I don't remember the specific scenes. I'd have to reread them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's, I guess it's okay. They're giving it to, to Littlefinger to give him more to do to make him more of an important character early on. Uh, we see, I see Littlefinger's like scheming is a lot more on display here, right? As he's continuing to just like fan the flames between the Lannisters and the Starks. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of him helping out Ned is to me, like I can see very clearly, like, okay, you're just doing this because you know that that's going to give him more fuel to then turn on the Lannisters. Right. And they do a good job of, of making Varys seem like that for the first, like two or three, maybe like the first two episodes that we meet him. And then like very quickly, we're like, Oh, Varys seems to be like really actually kind of on board for the realm. Yeah. Um, which is interesting though, cause he's backing the, he's backing the Targaryens, Illyria. right? And he's backing, he's backing Illyrio and they have this whole thing where they're going to try and, uh, have the Targaryens. So it's, yeah. to me, it seems he's like both Varys is kind of a Targaryen loyalist though, you know? Yeah. Let's talk about some other big things that happened here. Oh, um, in, in relation to Gregor, Gregor gets, leaves and he's, and he's, and he's turned raider and we see Ned order, his apprehension and, and murder or not murder uh, execution um and he, and he and he sends Beric Dondarrion played by a very different actor at this point in the show a little skinny guy um yeah I'm glad I'm glad they rehashed it's a cool moment and it's I remember reading it and like not realizing how important it is and how how big it is later because the whole like uh brotherhood without banners thing right um if that's what they're called, right? I, I think. Right. Um, yes. the, who Beric Dondarrion leads, and and it's all like their whole like thing is that they got an order from the king's hand to to do this thing, and so they're out yeah. here doing it forever, right. even though even though like Robert's dead, and it's all like they're still out there doing it, and um, it all starts at this moment right here with mm-hmm. Ned doing this, which is cool. Well, and and it's also a huge moment because like it's kind of a secondary statement after he says go we i'm sentencing i'm taking stripping him of all land all this other stuff but he's also calling tywin out and he's like tywin get get to king's landing and you're on the hook now like it's like you're like and if you're not here in 24 hours or however long if he doesn't if he doesn't reply back in 24 hours then he's going to be an enemy of the crown which is huge deal because clearly tywin has a ton of influence over the crown at this point and not not even just money wise but also like influence as with his with his kids yeah and so there's a moment in the book which i don't think we get in the show yet but i think is coming and it's where ned feels bad for because he's proven that he does he is not okay with the killing of children and he has a moment where you can totally understand why he does it, where he, he warned Cersei that they're coming for her and that net, that Robert's going to be furious and that he's going to probably have her children killed over this. Mm-hmm. Um, once he learns that, um, that Joffrey is not the son of, of Robert, right. Which he finds out through the whole like seat of strong hair thing. Well, that's what I mean. That goes into what I was talking about before about his, his yeah. big mistake was, was kind of warning her and like being as, as open, he should have done it more, more, uh, subtly. He should have done it more subtly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so when I, when I say that he still is making decisions that to me are still right, um, 
because you can see like he doesn't he doesn't believe in the murdering of children for political reasons. And so he is warning Cersei to give her a chance to flee. But clearly it tur- it blows up in his face because she because she warns him or he warns her, she gives her the opportunity she needs to do everything she can to, to turn. So like would the right thing for him to do here be let her children die? Um so that's why I'm saying how like, I love that Martin is able to I, in my opinion, basically make Ned make the right decision every moment up until the point in which he dies. And yeah. it's like it's like he can make the right decision. If you're talking morally, I think you're I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like he makes the right decision all I mean, yeah, I mean obviously it's somewhere in there there's mistakes because it led to his death, but he he still is making like the the, the, the like honorable and moral decision more often than not. Or right. in fact at every moment I would say. And it leads to his death, and 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 we see that all the way up to the very end, which we'll we'll definitely touch on when we get back to it, uh, you know, in, fur- in further episodes. So another massive part of this episode is is Bran out on the saddle that Tyrion had designed for him, and and he's with Rob, mm. and he gets attacked by these wildlings. Uh, and I think this is this is great because it's going to set up Rob as a character for us because we haven't been able to see him all that much mm. up to this point because Catelyn's been gone and Bran's been injured, so. To see him stand up and show that he actually is a capable warrior and and like he's uh, and to see also to interestingly enough to see Theon's loyalty at this point. Yeah. uh, Yeah, man. Theon. Uh, Theon is like I guess they do a lot to just set him up to be kind of a shit in the in the show that they need to do because he definitely is one. (laughs) Um, But man, every every scene he's in, he's he's pretty awful. Even early on, right? But you, I mean, so I guess approaching this not as a book reader, you're kind of happy that Theon stepped up to pull that pull that arrow and shoot shoot the uh, wildling. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in the book he does the same thing, and it's like uh, Rob points out, like, how did you like? What if your you know shot hadn't been a killing shot? What you know? What if you'd missed in some fashion, or what if you you know what I mean? Because like Bran could have Bran could have died there. What if he did nothing though? Yeah. That uh, that's a fair that's a fair counter argument for sure because like what was going to happen in this moment it seemed like it wasn't going to go well, <laughs> regardless. Um, I guess I mean more like all this he has all these scenes with like Ross that are just super cringy. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Well, I gotta say Tyrion's wrapped up in that too a little bit. The whole Ross and and like they they have a conversation as Tyrion's leaving and he he throws him a coin and he's like. He basically says like I'll try not to wear her out and this is for your next time next next tumble with Ross. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then there's like a weird jealousy thing going on there. And then that's also the girl that like John is referencing. Yeah. Uh, when he's talking to Sam, uh, it's all Ross. So, and she's an added character for the show. And it, I guess it's fine. It's like they're taking like multiple different prostitutes and they're making her into one character basically in the show, um, which for economy of character's sake I, uh, is, is I'm okay with. But yeah, there's just some really cringy stuff that goes on there. But I want to talk about one of the other major scenes that happens here. And that's Braun stepping up and defeating Servardus in you know the epic trial by combat the first trial by combat we get in game of thrones and it's a big one yeah what did you what did you think there's some changes here um the moon door you know being in use and i think uh the the book the fight plays out a little differently and like him wearing him down and making him tired is like played up in the book more whereas in the show it feels a little bit more of like a i don't know like less trickery is involved although there is some yeah, it seems like it, I do like the addition of the moon door, and I gotta say, the veil is is probably one of the most 
extravagant. I guess every kind of stronghold is is cool in its own way, but the veil is crazy with the moon door and how it's built up, built up. It's like you can't. How could you ever? How could you ever hope to to attack that that stronghold? Man, the moon, the the um the sky cells in the book are some really good really good stuff right the, the description of it I, they do a good job showing like Tyrion almost rolling off at one point and stuff but mm-hmm. i love the idea there's like something i think in, in the in the in the show they change it to like f- make him fly or something is what's written on the wall but in the book it's like the uh, like god help me the the blue is calling or something it's like to me it's more chilling in mm-hmm. the book like the, the the what's written on the wall yeah um it's 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 all good though and uh, i liked it you know the way they they handled it in the show i think was 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 clever and and i love you know Tyrion's whole thing with the the jailer and then and then paying his debts eventually when he does get out is cool mm. uh the lannisters yeah. always pay their debts which is funny too because we later learned that the later lannisters are actually broke <laughs> and so yeah. i love that once again this ties back to that idea of like power and and stuff it's like it's all like the what illusion. you can spin and like the illusion of like they have this whole motto around their house that makes everybody believe they're rich, even when they're not. They're de- they're definitely not just talking about money, though. You know what I mean? Their debts, yeah. like they're they're absolutely talking about like acts of of debt, like being indebted to somebody like Braun. Not necessarily money. He is looking for money, but they're indebted to him. Just basically, I mean, the the relationship that Tyrion and Braun share um, going forward is is definitely built on that kind of like Lannister repaying his debts, but yeah. kind of over and over again. Well, and like as rich as a Lannister is like a saying in the realm, right? Which you know, it, it, I mean, like to me, that's very Trumpian. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like how much money does Donald Trump actually have? You know, um, it's it's uh yeah, it's like uh, it's, it's just built around the name. Um, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's, it's something there. Yeah. <laughs> Man, if you think about how this interact intersects with like our real world politics, is another whole like thing you could really think about too. With like you know this crazy like backroom deals and well yeah and how about the honorable person getting totally screwed like the person who wants to stand up for for the right thing and being honorable that's very much i feel like something that that it's tough to it's tough to do in our political system be honorable and and push through for all the right reasons yeah right like you have to you have to play the game you have to be the politician you can't you can't just be an idealist that's true because that's the way the game's set up um yes yeah, it's, it's it's and and that's one of the reasons why i think game of thrones feels more fresh and and uh, you know applicable to the modern world um in in some ways and yeah man i mean we're still just in the middle here i know our next our next episodes are gonna be where the real shit goes down um so i'm looking forward to those but uh i think this is a good place to leave these episodes if you're if you uh unless you have anything else no i want to hear i want to talk to you more about this george R. R. martin as robert baratheon thing yeah okay so let's save that for the very end all right, we wanted to thank uh, one of our newer patrons, uh, J.D. Cook. Uh, thank you for supporting us and for helping us keep this show going. If you wanted to find out how to become a patron yourself, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. You can find out about our bonus content that we're offering and all sorts of other goodies. If you wanted to connect with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all those at ink to film. And we have a Facebook group called the Council of Inklings as well, where we post polls and other information about coming adaptations or anything we find interesting. So check that out. Yeah, and if you wanted to send us feedback otherwise, you can always send us a email to inktofilm at gmail.com, and we would be glad to respond to that and check it out and maybe even talk about it on the show. Also, if you wanted to support the podcast, you could leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, that would be awesome. Please do that. Also, make sure to subscribe if you're not subscribed to make sure you get all, all of our content as soon as it comes out. Thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts. 
And thank you to Ramses B for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. So let's get into it. Uh, I propose the idea. I don't even know if I believe it, but the idea that perhaps Martin has become a Robert Baratheon type figure. Uh, what do you think of that? Now that I've just hit you with this with this out of there idea. So my initial reaction was I kind of I kind of get it, but I also think that he's still. It's not that he's. So you're saying in terms of like, he's he's mastered this this amazing amazing accomplishment, and he has this huge series yeah. under him. But in terms of like getting it finished and everything he's slowing down and kind of just he's reached the pinnacle and i think um and and the way that i'm comparing it is that like the thing that was driving him i think was like the 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 he wanting to reach wanting to reach the pinnacle wanting to get to where he's at now Mm -hmm. and now that he's have it he has it i think there that 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 is one of the reasons why he's slowed down um i think there's a lot of pressure no, no doubt to, to to stick the landing and that's got to be like crippling but i also think you know maybe some of that drive is just different now it's just maybe it's a little bit absent i think yeah i think you're you're gonna change based on the, your motivations might change based on the success of something like this so you know if, yeah. if it hadn't become the huge success that winds of winter would probably be out by now um but he also he, i would say that he's not completely robert baratheon-esque because he's at least still engaging with the material and putting out new books that uh, further flush out other things yeah and i think he cares whereas robert baratheon you could argue maybe doesn't care that much (laughs) right um yeah and and like and the other thing is like he wrote that character um so i think he is aware of the dangers of uh of getting everything you want and then having to deal with it right and having to live with all that success and, uh, you know, maybe just because he wrote the character doesn't mean that he's immune to it. But at, at the very least, I would hope that he maybe has an awareness about it, his situation and right. and uh, to, to where hopefully it wouldn't completely uh, control him. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I just thought it was kind of a fun comparison to make. Right. Like it, I could see some parallels there. Yeah, I get that. It's funny. What do you who, who's is Ned Stark? Who's <laughs> is Ned Stark? Uh I don't know. I can't think of anybody. Maybe he just needs one. Maybe yeah. he needs a Ned Stark to to help him out. I mean, maybe that's the problem. Is is Tolkien his John Aaron? <laughs> Tolkien is John Aaron. Uh, yeah, that's that's uh maybe. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. I, I'm I'm st- we've stretched this metaphor about as far as it can stretch without <laughs> breaking. So, uh, I think it's about time to wrap this one up. Um, we hope you join us again next week when we get to the final episodes and final chapters of Game of Thrones. Uh, season one, book one. Um, we wrap our coverage uh, of this of this project for now until we possibly return to it in the future. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope you guys come back next week for that. All right, and until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.